0: We're gonna have a a great time together as we look to the arrival of our King this morning and the beginning of Holy Week and the coming of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago when he entered Jerusalem. This morning, I wanna invite you to join me in a word of prayer. We're gonna ask God's blessing over our message today as we turn to his word. We're gonna be looking at the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 11, and I wanna invite you to join me Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts to the power of his word today. That we might see anew the amazing Savior that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Palm Sunday and for this Holy Week. Lord, we come today with heavy hearts we are in the midst of a very difficult time as a as a nation and as a world and lord i know that many of us have many things that we're wrestling with and things that we're concerned about today but lord i pray that as we look to you this morning as we look to the the beauty of your word and the and the amazing savior that we have in our lord jesus christ that those great truths and promises would renew our spirits give us a great sense of joy and peace and optimism today as we're reminded of where our hope truly lies as your people, that we have a king, we have a savior, we have one who has promised us new and eternal life. And so we thank you, God, for that basis of hope, that sure foundation that we have as your people. So we ask your blessing this morning. On our time together, as we look to your word, God, encourage the hearts of my friends who are watching with us. Lord, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, this morning as we begin our celebration of Holy Week and Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is always one of my favorite days of the year, especially when we're able to all be together for worship. For those of you who have been with us here in the past at Lakes Free, uh. Every Palm Sunday we have a special time of celebration, as our worship team leads us in worship, and we have all of the children of our church march down the center of our center aisles of the sanctuary, waving palm branches, reminding us of that celebration that took place two thousand years ago at jesus 's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I, I missed that time so much this morning, and, and I pray that you can just reproduce a bit of that joy and enthusiasm in your own homes today as we spend some time looking into the gospel of Mark and the the revelation of that original day of joy and celebration when King Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. You know, it was very interesting. This past week I was trying to think about some of the experiences that that I've had in my life that that may have been similar to what it was like on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. I was thinking, you know, what what would it have been like to be there on the the streets leading into Jerusalem as as Jesus came riding in and, and the sides of the roads were lined with hundreds, maybe thousands of people celebrating the arrival of Jesus, looking at the arrival of of the one who they thought was their king, the conquering king who would overthrow the yoke of their oppressors, the Roman Empire that had conquered and subjugated the Jews and and the nation of Israel. What must it have been like that time of joyful celebration? And you know, friends, the, the closest thing that I could think of in terms of my own experience to to what that day would have been like. I was remembering back to the year 1987. I was 12 years old in 1987. And in 1987, for those of you who are from Minnesota, you know that something really special took place that year. That was the year that our Minnesota Twins won the World Series. It was an incredible World Series, one of the greatest World Series of all time. The, the Minnesota Twins that year had been underdogs all season. They had made it through the playoffs. Great heroes like Kirby Puckett and Kent Herbeck, Frank Viola. I mean, some of the legends. And and as underdogs, they made it through the playoffs. And, and then they ended up beating the favored St. Louis Cardinals that year. It was an incredible, incredible World Series. And I remember as a 12-year-old boy going with my father downtown St. Paul to the huge parade that the state threw for the Minnesota Twins. It was an incredible celebration. They estimate that there were hundreds of thousands of people who came out for that parade. The the streets were lined with people as far as the eye could see. I remember when my dad and I drove down to St. Paul, we couldn't even find a place to park. The police were literally pulling people over on the side of the highway. We parked off of 94, right on the side of the highway, and we had to walk about a mile up towards the state capitol just to get close to see the procession. It was a great time of celebration. And I thought to myself this week that I wonder if if the people who were ushering in the arrival of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, maybe, maybe that was somewhat similar to their experience. Maybe they we're celebrating in that same joy and enthusiasm as Jesus came marching into Jerusalem. You know, I'm pretty confident that Jesus didn't have the, the same kinds of numbers that day as the Minnesota Twins did back in 1987. Jesus was probably ushered into Jerusalem by a few hundred people, maybe thousands of people at most. But I can bet you that the enthusiasm was much the same on that first Palm Sunday when Jesus arrived. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 11, the triumphal entry of Jesus on the first day of Holy Week, Palm Sunday. We're not just going to stop there, though. We're also going to look at the second day of Holy Week and the events that took place that very next day at the arrival of King Jesus. It's a fascinating passage today, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. You know, friends, this week I was talking to a fellow pastor, a close friend of mine, and I had asked him, you know, what are you going to be preaching this Sunday, Palm Sunday? Are are you going to be talking about the triumphal entry in in Palm Sunday with your people online? And he said to me, he said, you know, Jason, I I really feel like our people need a message of hope today. And so I've decided that I'm not going to preach on Palm Sunday. I'm going to to share with my church a, a message more relevant for our day today as we're dealing with COVID-19 and the the financial concerns people have. I I wanted to give my people a more relevant and hope-filled message for this morning. Now, friends, I I love my friend and and I understand his heart and motivation to share that message of hope with his church. But but I would respectfully disagree in terms of the message of Jesus' triumphal entry in Palm Sunday not being a timely and relevant message for today. Not being a message of hope. Friends, as I thought about this passage this morning, I, I thought to myself, there couldn't be a more timely and relevant message than what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus' triumphal entry and the beginning of Holy Week is probably the most important message we could look at today for these times that we find ourselves in times of concern and tor- turmoil. And fears and and all of the the concerns surrounding the COVID nineteen virus, friends. Today's passage is truly a relevant passage and a great message of hope. We're going to be in Mark chapter eleven, verses one through eighteen, and and I want to read the passage for us this morning, and then I want to come back and I want to answer the question: Why does Palm Sunday from two thousand years ago matter today? What was it about Palm Sunday and Jesus' arrival 2,000 years ago that is so special, so meaningful, and so relevant for us in this day and age? Well, friends, there's a lot for us here. Let's read our passage, and then I want to come back and answer that question. Starting chapter 11, verse 1, the, the Gospel of Mark tells us this about that first day of Holy Week. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, a quick pause there. The word Hosanna is an interesting word. It's derived from a number of Old Testament texts, but the word Hosanna means praise. It means save us. In other words, the people were crying out to Jesus, Lord, save us. We praise you, Lord, save us. So they were yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Picking up in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany. With the twelve. Now, on the second day of Holy Week, picking up in verse twelve, on the second day, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Friends, what an incredible passage of Scripture that we find here in the Gospel of Mark. It's a story of Jesus' arrival in the very beginning of those events that would forever change history the events of Holy Week, the the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, known as the triumphal entry, is an interesting passage here. It's an account that's found in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them found this account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem to be so important, so meaningful that they all included in their Gospels, in their testimonies of Jesus' life and ministry. The question I wanted to ask this morning, as we think about this day, Palm Sunday and and again the day after Palm Sunday, what was it about these events two thousand years ago that are so important for today? Why does Palm Sunday two thousand years ago matter for us today? I mean, we're living in a whole different world. We're, we're living in a time with different concerns, different fears and cares, and yet, friends, as we're going to see. The message of Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago is still as relevant as ever. It's still as needed as ever. You see, Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago matters today for three reasons. Number one, Palm Sunday matters for today because Jesus showed us the kind of King we truly need. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus showed us the kind of King we truly need. And we see this here at the outset of our passage in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. It was the arrival of Passover in Jerusalem. Thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims from around the world had flooded into Jerusalem for the time of Passover, that special time when God's people celebrated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt people from all over the world, Jews from around the world would come to Jerusalem to come to the temple, to offer their sacrifices, to receive forgiveness from their sins. And this was a special time where Jerusalem, like no other time of the year, was flooded with pilgrims. And this was the time that Jesus chose to arrive, to announce his coming as Messiah. Prior to this, Jesus had performed his ministry in relative secrecy. He had refrained from announcing to the to the masses his true intentions and, and who he truly was. And, and here at Palm Sunday, in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, God was proclaiming to the world that the king had arrived, the king had come. But friends, Jesus wasn't exactly the kind of king the people wanted but he was the kind of king the people needed. Passion week begins with this jubilant scene and and Jesus marching down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. His disciples had gone out and and found this colt for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on. And and Jesus' followers and other pilgrims who, who saw the scene gathering, entering into Jerusalem, lined the roads and began to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. People took off their, their cloaks and threw them on the ground in front of Jesus, a symbol of his kingly authority. They, they waved palm branches in celebration and, and laid palm branches on the streets in front of Jesus. Again, a sign of respect for the arrival of the king. You see, the Jews of this day were, were anxiously anticipating the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies that speak to the arrival of a coming Messiah who would overthrow the oppressors of the Jewish people, who would reestablish the throne of David in Israel, who would rule and reign in righteousness and truth over all the nations. And this is what the people were celebrating as they ushered Jesus into Jerusalem. Hosanna, they cried, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. These people believed that Jesus, this one they had heard so much about, the one who could calm the waves and cast out demons and raise the dead, the one who could perform miracles. They believed that this Jesus was going to be the Messiah who would free them from their oppressors. They welcomed Jesus because he thought he was the king they wanted. But you see, friends, the reality was Jesus wasn't the king they wanted, at least not on that day, but he was the king they truly needed. Jesus was the king they truly needed. We we see a glimpse of this and a hint of this, and in the very way that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus' disciples went out after being told by Jesus to go and and find this colt. And and they went to this village, Bethany, and and, and they found this colt tied, which no one had ever rode on. And the disciples took this colt and they brought it to Jesus. Now, the word colt there is an interesting word, and and this is where we get a hint into the kind of king Jesus truly was, the the true intention of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem that week, on that first Palm Sunday. The word colt here in the Gospel of Mark, in in the Greek, the word colt is polos, polos. And it can be translated a number of ways. It can be translated as a foal or a colt, in other words, a young horse. Or it can be translated as a young donkey. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, we read in English that Jesus rode on a colt. So which was it? Was he riding a a young horse here? or, Or was he riding on the back of a donkey, a young donkey? Well, friends, the Gospels of Matthew and John actually clarify what this animal was. You see, the Gospels of Matthew and John use a different Greek word for this animal. They use the Greek word onarion, which means a young donkey. And so when we compare those two gospels with Mark's account, we, we have confirmation here that Jesus was truly riding on onarion, a, a young donkey, not a horse. He rode a donkey. Now, friends, why is that significant? Well, when we look back to the Old Testament and the prophet Zechariah, In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, a prophecy written 500 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 9, 9, the prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah tells us 500 years before the arrival of Jesus that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. And this is how Jesus arrived on that first Palm Sunday, riding on a humble animal, not a mighty stallion as a conquering king, a a victorious general, but he entered Jerusalem on his triumphal entry, riding on the back. Of a lowly, humble donkey. Now, friends, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the procession that accompanied him and the parade and celebration, this whole scene would have been something that would have been very common in the ancient world. You see, whenever a, a king or a conquering general entered into the city after winning a great victory, The people would line the streets in celebration, singing songs of praise, waving palm branches in celebration and recognition of the king's arrival or the conquering general's arrival. In fact, that very same day, 2,000 years ago, that first Palm Sunday, the people of Jerusalem would have seen Pontius Pilate, the, the governor from Rome who... Was governing over Judea at the time, they would have seen Pontius Pilate come riding into Jerusalem just a few hours before Jesus, accompanied by hundreds of Roman soldiers in this grand procession. Pilate was either being, or, or uh, Pontius Pilate would have either been carried in, in a in a uh, in a carriage by servants, or he would have been riding on a mighty horse. But this was the way a conqueror would enter the city. And so the people of that day would have been used to this kind of a thing. And so this is why they did their best to celebrate Jesus's arrival. But friends, Jesus's procession was markedly different from that of Pontius Pilate or the other conquering kings of his day and age. You see, Jesus was a king without a horse. Jesus was a victor without an army. Jesus came as a completely different kind of king from what everybody expected, from what everybody wanted. Jesus didn't come as a liberator. He didn't come as a conqueror. He came humble, lowly, as a servant to ultimately give his life for his people. You know, friends, you have to wonder if many of the Jews and Roman authorities who were watching the scene unfold that day, if many of those religious leaders and Roman authorities didn't find this whole scene to be a bit comical. Here is this this unknown figure riding into town on a lowly donkey with, with a few hundred people shouting, Save us! Hosanna! Blessed be the name of the Lord! And for these Roman and Jewish authorities watching this unfold before their eyes, they must have thought, What a joke! Save us? Are you kidding me? This is their king. This is their hero. You see, friends, Jesus was very different from what was expected. And you know, I wonder if this isn't why so many in our world today still feel, fail to give Jesus the kind of attention he deserves. I mean, when you think about it, don't we too today look for the same kinds of kings as the Romans and Jews of 2,000 years ago? Don't we today still look for the mighty conqueror, the, the mighty hero, the powerful, the strong? I mean, I mean, just think about our own politicians here in America, friends. Our presidents boast about who had the biggest inaugural celebration. Our politicians brag about whose approval ratings are higher. Pundits argue over whose favored candidate had the biggest rally. Friends, all of this is just the modern-day version of the conquering general riding into town on his powerful stallion. It's all about power and fame and acclaim. These are the things we celebrate and look to in our leaders still today. And friends, that wasn't Jesus. That isn't Jesus. If you remember back in the book of Philippians that we just studied, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ didn't come as a conquering king; he came in humility, because he came to be our Savior. Isaiah chapter 53, again written 500 years before the time of Jesus, Isaiah 53 describes him as a suffering servant, one who would be abused and insulted and killed, but the one who would bore, bear our sins and transgressions. Friends, this was the kind of king we truly needed. We needed a king like Jesus, the one who came in humility, who died in indignity, but then rose again to glory. That's the king we need. Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 to say this about Jesus Christ. Because of what he did coming in humility, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know something, friends? That passage we looked at earlier, Zechariah 9.10, while it talked about the Messiah coming, riding on a humble donkey, you want to know what it goes on to say in verses 10 and beyond? It tells us that that Messiah who came humble, riding on a donkey, would one day rule the earth from sea to sea. He would rule the whole earth. And just like Paul tells us here in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, 2,000 years ago on that first Palm Sunday was not the day that Jesus came as the conquering king, the victorious general. One day that day is coming. Jesus will come not riding on a lowly donkey, but come riding on a powerful stallion from heaven. And one day he will rule this earth from sea to sea. He'll reign in truth and justice and righteousness and make all things new. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't come as the king the people wanted. He came as the king we needed, a humble, lowly servant, a savior. The second reason this morning that Palm Sunday is still relevant and and meaningful for us today. 2,000 years ago, why does it matter for today? Number two this morning, because Jesus showed us the kind of king, or I'm sorry, the kind of desperation we truly face. Jesus showed us the kind of desperation we truly face. In verses 12 through 14, we find this curious story. It's truly one of the most unusual stories in the Gospels. Mark's not only the only gospel author who tells us this story. It's a story of Jesus as his followers on the second day of Holy Week where we're returning to the temple and Jesus is hungry and he sees this fig tree with with full green leaves in bloom. And Jesus goes to this fig tree, which looks like it has life and should be bearing fruit, but Jesus doesn't find any figs on this fig tree. And so Jesus curses this fig tree he says here in Mark, may, may you never produce fruit again. May no one eat from you again. Other gospels tell us that the fig tree immediately withered. Here in the gospel of Mark, we don't learn that it withered until a little bit later here in chapter 11. But Jesus pronounces this curse on this tree. It, it, it's, this, it's this weird scene. And people ask, you know, what, what's going on here? Some Some liberal theologians and liberal scholars point to this scene to argue that This is an evidence of Jesus being nothing more than an average man that here. Jesus is hungry. He gets upset because the tree isn't bearing fruit. And so Jesus casts a cast calls down a curse on this tree and the tree withers. Jesus is just a, a petulant child here expressing his frustration and anger, but friends understand that's not at all what's going on in this story. You see, We need to understand that the story of Jesus cursing this fruitless fig tree is actually a living parable. This was a living parable that Jesus told as he approached the temple on the second day of Holy Week. He shared this parable with his disciples, a living parable to help them recognize the desperation of the people of Israel in that day. You see, the meaning of the miracle is that The tree looked like it was alive. The tree was green with leaves, and by all accounts, a a leafy green tree should be bearing fruit. But you see, there was something wrong with that tree. That tree was fruitless. While it looked alive and full on the outside, on the inside, there was something wrong with that tree. That tree was sick. Maybe you've had an experience like that in your own life where maybe you've been out chopping wood or or cutting down a tree and and you cut into a tree that on the outside looks good, but as soon as you get into the inside of the tree, you recognize the inside is rotted. Something's wrong with that tree. Maybe if if you're a fisherman like me, you've had that experience where you've you've caught a fish and you bring that fish home to clean and, and on the outside, the fish looks good, but you start cutting into the fish. And as you look at the meat, You see black spots, purple spots. You recognize something is wrong on the inside. That fish is sick. Or maybe you've had the experience where you go to the the farmer's market and you buy ears of corn and you bring those ears of corn home. And on the outside, they look green and full and beautiful, but you start husking the corn. And on the inside, you find it's full of worms. It's sick. Something's wrong. See, friends, this was the meaning of the parable of the tree that Jesus cursed. The parable of the tree represented the Jewish religion of Jesus' day. It represented the religion of the Jews of Jesus' day, which had become corrupted and perverted. A religion that claimed to promise people a way to God, but inside had become sick and tainted and corrupted. It had become polluted we see the reality of this in Jesus's interactions with some of the religious leaders during his ministry. In passages like Matthew 23, 27 through 28, for example, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, friends, the tree that Jesus cursed represented the state of Jerusalem and Israel in Jesus's day. It represented the reality of the Jewish religion of Jesus's day. On the outside, it looked good and and, and it put on this show of righteousness. But as Jesus told the Jewish religious leaders, All of their outward acts were just a mask for what was going on inside. Inside, they were dead. They were corrupted. All their good works were just an outward show. And inside, they were sick. And this is what was going on here in the parable of the cursed tree. But I want you to understand something this morning. You see, the parable of the tree here has a broader application beyond just the Jews of Jesus' day. You see, the parable of the tree here also represents countless people today in our own world. Maybe even some of you watching this morning, people who, who put their hope in good deeds and good works and being a good person, people who outwardly look very good, moral, kind, loving people. Outwardly, they look good, but inwardly, they are desperately sick. And because of this, their lives don't bear the fruit that God is looking for. The fruit of faith and repentance, a heart that is truly humbled before God. Friends, Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You know something, friends, there are many people in our world who think putting their hope in good works, by putting their hope in being a good person, by being a moral person, a kind person, that that these outward signs of righteousness are what will ultimately earn them favor in God's eyes. And they put their hope in good works. But friends, understand all of our outer righteousness is meaningless if inside we're sick, if we haven't dealt with the sin that plagues our hearts. In the book of James, we read an interesting statement. The Apostle James tells us that faith without works is dead. And that's absolutely true, friends. True faith that doesn't produce fruit is not real faith. It's dead. But I want you to know something this morning. In the very same way, works without faith is also dead. All the good works in the world apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ does you absolutely no good. And there are many in our world today who strive to produce this kind of fruit in their life. They strive to live a righteous life, a moral life, they strive to be good people. If you ask them, you know, why do you think you're going to get to heaven one day? They'll tell you things like, "Well, you know, I just try to be a good person." And there are many who try to produce Good fruit. But the reality is, they don't have the root. They're not connected to the root, the root that gives life, Jesus Christ. You know, friends, I want you to think with me this morning. What if COVID 19 wasn't the greatest problem our world faces today? What if there was a disease ravaging our nation, even our churches? Maybe even some of you watching this morning. A disease ravaging your own soul that is far more dire than any virus. And what if there were not thousands infected, but billions of people today walking around as carriers of this disease? That would be a pandemic of epic proportions. And friends, I want you to understand God's word tells us that this pandemic is very real. The Apostle John in 1 John 1.8 tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are many people in our world today who walk around each and every day thinking that they are without sin, thinking that they're basically good people, they're moral people, they're, they're loving, kind people, and they may be so friends, but all of our outer Acts of righteousness are like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. See, we have a sickness inside of us. Jeremiah 17:9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Friends, if you haven't dealt with the sin sickness inside of you, all of your outer works, all of your outer acts of righteousness, your good deeds, your kindness, your morality are meaningless if you haven't dealt with the sin that plagues your heart. This is why Jesus came. He came into the world to show us the desperation we truly face. And he came to provide a cure. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Friends, we have a sickness inside of us. We are desperately sick, but Jesus has provided the cure. Have you received that cure? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ, the only one who can cleanse you? Of your inner sin sickness, I hope you'll trust in Jesus. The last reason why Palm Sunday, two thousand years ago, is so meaningful and relevant for us today is because Jesus showed us the kind of cleansing we truly require. You know it's very interesting in verses fifteen through eighteen we read the the famous story of Jesus cleansing the temple the the corrupt money changers who were there. The, the corrupt people selling sacrificial animals at a high markup. Friends, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock in our pastor's study, we're going to dig into this far more and talk a lot about what was going on here. It's a very interesting story with a lot of important background that we don't have time for this morning. But when we look at this passage, a lot of people immediately think about Jesus cleansing the temple and and taking out the money changers and overturning their tables, and their corruption. But I want you to understand this morning, Jesus was passing judgment on more than just the corruption of the money changers. Jesus was passing judgment on a whole host of idols that set themselves up in competition with the one true God. Jesus, in entering that temple courtyard, where, which would have looked like a religious flea market, friends, People bartering and selling, selling sacrificial animals at a a high markup, ripping off the pilgrims who had come to sacrifice and find forgiveness for their sins. Money changers who who took their, their funds from around the world and exchanged them for special temple coins that they needed to use to buy their sacrifices. And they would mark up this exchange at exorbitant rates ripping people off friends when jesus went and he overturned the tables and cleansed the courtyard of the money changers he wasn't just overturning the idols of money and and wealth and greed but he was overturning a whole host of idols there jesus was attacking the idols of of money and and those who place their hopes in material gain he was attacking the idols of false religion which which claims to provide peace with God through external ritual and external righteousness. He was was attacking the self-righteousness of the Jewish religious leaders, which looked down on others and in their pride and, and in their arrogance, judging others, claiming that they were better because they were the special ones. They were the chosen ones and the others were all sinners. Jesus was judging them of their hypocrisy. Jesus was judging the idols of status and prestige and fame. The temple, the symbol of Israel, the symbol of the Jews' national pride, the symbol of their renown around the world, their emblem of glory and power and prestige, where they placed their hope and their pride. Jesus was, in a sense, attacking the idol of status, showing them that they had put their hopes in the wrong things. Jesus was attacking their prejudices because here the the money changers had set up in the courtyard of the Gentiles, creating a barrier to the Gentiles who had come to worship God. The Gentiles who weren't allowed to go in the inner sections of the temple, but they had made a barrier to their worship. And, And so Jesus in this act of cleansing the temple was doing far more than just overturning the tables of the money changers. He was overturning a whole series of idols that we, too, to this very day, still put our hopes in. Friends, we need to understand Jesus' actions on that second day of Holy Week were tremendously profound. Jesus was saying that all of the false idols that we put our hopes in, money, religion, self-righteousness, our hypocrisy, our our appeals to status and prestige and fame, the prejudices we hold. Jesus was overturning all of these things, saying that is not God's will for his people. How often do we erect these very same idols in our lives? And why do we do this? We do it because, as we saw earlier, we're sick inside. We have a sin sickness inside of us. This is our problem. And just like the Jews of Jesus' day, we too today need someone to tear down our idols, to overturn the gods that we've wrongly put our confidence in, to cleanse us of our sin and rebellion against the only one who is truly worthy of our allegiance. Friends, that's why Palm Sunday matters, because Jesus came to cleanse us of our sin and be our Savior to remove the idols that plague us. This is what we're going to celebrate in five days on Good Friday. I hope you'll join us here Friday night at 7 o'clock. Tune in online for a special Good Friday service as we look to our Savior who came to overturn our idols, who came to heal us of our sin sickness through his sacrificial death on the cross that washes us and cleanses us and makes us new. Friends, it's because of that sacrifice that we can be made right with our holy creator, creator God. 1 John 1.9 tells us that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, why does Palm Sunday from 2,000 years ago matter today? It matters, friends, because it points us to our need for Good Friday. Jesus on Palm Sunday was pointing us to our need for Good Friday. And when we acknowledge that need, that's when we find a basis for real hope, for real life, the life that gives us cause to celebrate on Easter. Friends, I hope you know that life that's found in Jesus Christ. I hope you've experienced the cleansing of sin, the inner peace with God that you can have through Jesus Christ. That's what Holy Week is all about. Jesus arriving as king, laying down his life as our savior, and then conquering the grave, rising again as our risen king. I hope you know him. I hope you pr- and pray you've put your trust in him. And I hope and pray that you know the peace that comes from walking with him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this special passage the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, not as the king we wanted, but coming truly as the king we needed. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing to us just how desperately sick we truly are and just how much we need a Savior to cleanse us on the inside, to overturn the idols that we so often look to and put our hope in and to to overturn those idols and tear them down and show us a vision of our true king, the only one that can really bring us peace with God. Jesus, we praise your name today, and we thank you for your faithfulness. God, bless us this holy week as we meditate on the truth of who you are, as we reflect on the beauty of who you are and the power and the amazing grace that we have in you. We praise your name, Jesus. Amen.